the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is on vacation, but Sam Maupin, the guy is here. He's engineering. He's in charge. He is the man. Today, we're going to hear a conversation with Mo Aiken, author of Fully Known, an invitation to true intimacy with God. That's coming up at the first part of the second hour of today's program. So we'll start out with a look at some of the day's news. Well, U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhart, as expected, has ordered the Justice Department unseal and make public a redacted version of the affidavit used to justify the warrant for the FBI's raid on former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago home by Friday at noon. Well, the Justice Department turned over a redacted version of the affidavit to the judge on Thursday at noon after he rejected the government's argument to keep the document under seal, citing the intense public and historical interest in the FBI's unprecedented raid on the former president's private residence. Now, this may be redacted to the point where you see a series of blacked out pages and there's virtually nothing useful, or it could provide some insight as to the motivation and the justification for the raid. My hope is that it will provide enough information that it will either justify the raid or will answer questions proving that it was unjustified, but there will be some clarity. My guess is it will fall short of uh, of that. Said the uh, judge uh, in an order to unseal Thursday afternoon. This is in a written statement. I have reviewed the government's memorandum of law and proposed redactions to the search uh, search warrant affidavit. I am fully advised in the entire record, including the contents of the affidavit. Well, the judge said that after reviewing the Justice Department's redactions, the government has met its burden of showing a compelling reason. So it gives a hint that perhaps there is sufficient information to give us some insight He went on to say, and good cause to seal portions of the affidavit, saying the disclosure would reveal the identities of witnesses, law enforcement agents, uncharged parties, the investigation's strategy, direction, scope, sources and methods and grand jury information protected by federal rules. So sorting all of that out may or may not produce what's satisfactory to the general public who may or may not have any interest in the justification behind all of that. Well, the judge ordered that the Justice Department unseal the affidavit with its proposed redactions by noon tomorrow. So we'll see what happens next. In other news, former President Donald Trump's social media outfit, Truth Social, is locked in a bitter battle with one of its vendors, claiming that the platform is um, stiffing the company out of more than a million dollars in contractually obligated payments. Well, if the allegations are true, they would suggest that Truth Social's finances are in significant disarray. People with direct knowledge of the matter say Internet infrastructure company Right Forge is said to be among Truth Social's largest vendors and creditors. Uh, in October, Right Forge announced it entered into an agreement to host Truth Social with Trump um, helped um, create after he was banned by Twitter following 
the January 6th riots. Well, Wright Forge now contends that Truth Social has reneged on its contractually obligated monthly payments for setting up the platform's web servicing infrastructure, according to three people with direct knowledge of the matter. Now, do they have accurate um, retelling of the matter? Do they have clear understanding and access to information? Not altogether clear, but... These people say that Wright Forge contends that Truth Social has made just three payments and ceased making any payments since around March. Wright Forge claims that Truth Social owes it around $1.6 million and is threatening legal action to recoup the money. Well, the CEO for the organization declined to comment on any private matters, but wouldn't deny the disagreement between the two entities. So, um, again, that's a developing story. We'll try to follow if and when more information is available. Well, the transition from gas to electric is picking up speed. California plans to ban the sale of new gasoline-powered cars starting in 2035, and Washington state officials said it will also adopt the rules. Governor Jay Inslee tweeted today, or rather yesterday, we're ready to adopt California's regs by the end of this year. This is a critical milestone in our climate fight. Washington set in law a goal for all new car sales to be zero emissions by 2030, and we're ready. Inslee said, well, California's plan would require all new cars, trucks and SUVs to run on electricity or hydrogen. Now, my first question is, are you also planning the infrastructure that can handle all of that new um, draw on California system that's already a bit uh, dicey. No new gas-powered vehicles could be sold after 2035. The policy also approved Thursday by regulators. The uh, policy still needs federal approval, though it's likely to happen under President Joe Biden's administration. Whenever they put out a new rule, we have a direction to follow that, said Washington Department of Ecology Climate Policy Section Manager Joel Cresswell. States can either set their own limits that match the federal rules or they can match California's rules. Why anyone in their right mind would want to follow California in very many things is uh, a miracle and question for me. But Washington state said in 2019, the state would adopt California's zero emission vehicle rules in accordance with the federal clear, uh, clear air act. Is it clear or clean? I think it's actually clean. I think so, too. Anyway, Cresswell's work uh, to craft those rules and make sure Washington state's on track to hit them. The state recently hit a milestone of 100,000 electric vehicles on the road. A big part of the reason why those are uh, here is because California was a leader. Transportation makes up nearly half of Washington's greenhouse gas emissions. So Washington following after California. Well, an economics professor from Johns Hopkins University said during a Tuesday appearance on CNN, the president Joe Biden's plan to forgive student loan debt would make the racial wealth gap wider and make inflation worse. The issue is debt cancellation might reduce the racial wealth gap between two rich doctors and uh, two rich black doctors and rich white doctor. But it actually widens the racial wealth gap overall because disproportionately the people who hold student debt Uh, that went to college are white, and the 87% of Americans that didn't go to college are disproportionately people of color. Mark Goldwine, who also serves as senior policy director for the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget, told CNN's Poppy Harlow. Well, Goldwine, he offered alternatives to debt forgiveness that could address the racial wealth gap. A more targeted approach would focus on fixing income-driven repayments and, more importantly, on getting college affordability in the first place. Well, that certainly would be a place to start that would be broadly embraced and supported across political lines. 
Did you just give me the one minute? I, I missed that. All right. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a question is being raised. Can anyone sue over the president's student loan lawlessness? As we discovered yesterday, the Department of Education said the executive can't do it. Nancy Pelosi said before she changed her position that the executive doesn't have the authority. It's a legislative matter. The Biden administration is using a um, legal argument to justify forgiving student debt, something uh, even Democrats thought was only a, a power that Congress had not long ago. Even the Department of Education thought it was only a power of Congress not that long ago. On the 12th of January, 2021, the department's Office of General Counsel published a legal opinion that cited Congress's power to the uh, uh, power of the purse under the Constitution and said the, the secretary does not have statutory authority to provide blanket or mass cancellation, compromise, discharge or forgiveness of student loan principal balances and or materially modify the repayment amounts of terms thereof, whether due to the COVID-19 pandemic or for any other reason, end quote. But now, as if by magic, even though the laws are all the same, the Office of General Counsel has found legal authority for the Secretary of Education to go it alone. The legal opinion this time around cites the HEROES Act, which was passed after 9-11 and claims that the emergency powers given to the Secretary under that law could be used to effectuate program of targeted loan cancellation directed at addressing the financial harm of the COVID-19 pandemic. Never mind that the 2021 opinion specifically considers the HEROES Act and found its provisions too narrow for blanket cancellation. Never mind that student loan recipients have already benefited tremendously from any repayment pause or of the um, past two years due to the pandemic. And never mind that the unemployment rate is currently at 2% for college students and financial harms from the pandemic are mostly a thing of the past. A law passed after 9-11 now gives the Secretary of Education unilateral authority to add nearly $500 billion to the national debt. And he is not required to determine or show that any individual borrower is entitled to a specific amount of relief. And he instead may provide relief on a categorical basis as necessary to address the financial harms of the pandemic. End quote. The opinion says, well, it should be... um, Laughed out of federal court, but rather it is being embraced. Well, some have speculated that the Supreme Court would, based on recent decisions that restricted executive power, put the Department of Education back in its place. But those arguments don't matter if nobody has standing to bring a case in the first place. An April 15th article in the Virginia Law Review Uh, considers the question of standing and concludes that it's entirely possible that nobody in America has it even those who are charged with paying other people's debt. Well, Hoover considers the Secretary of Education for giving student loans using the Higher Education Act. The Secretary of Education did not actually use the um, the Education Act, rather the HEROES Act, as previously mentioned, but many of the potential plaintiffs would be the same in response to what actually occurred. One would be taxpayers. One might sue over their money being used to fund illegal activity. But the Supreme Court has limited taxpayer standing to only a narrow range of possible situations, Hoover writes, and taxpayers can only challenge legislative moves, not executive moves. Former borrowers might want to sue, aligning 
uh, alleging rather that they uh, were aggrieved by the action, but they would have a hard time demonstrating concrete injury. Hoover writes, and even if loan cancellation could be conceived of as an injury to former borrowers, an injunction from the judiciary would uh, do nothing to remedy the injury. Well, Congress might want to sue, given the executive branch has usurped its constitutional authority. But Hoover writes that because Congress did appropriate funds for student loans and did hand the administration of these uh, funds over to the executive branch, Congress would have uh, would not have legal standing to bring a case as a federal legislature. And its purported injuries would be no different from any other member of the public. Well, maybe states attorneys general could bring a case similar to the ones against Obamacare. But Hoover argues that wouldn't work either. No state contracts are being violated and states have no plausible argument that federal debt cancellation would interfere with their own sovereign powers, given that neither the HEA, the Education Act, nor loan distributions implicate state governments. Well, the strongest possible argument for standing might be from loan servicers. The federal government does not serve its student loans itself. It contracts with firms to do that. Well, those firms could argue that they have standing because of the financial injury that loan cancellation has created. But since the loan cancellation was an agency action, Hoover writes that potential litigants would have to satisfy additional criteria under the Administrative Procedure Act to have standing. And based on past procedures in cases involving the Postal Service and the Bureau of Prisons, Loan servicers would likely not be able to meet those criteria. Hoover also notes that if federal contractors got to sue every time a regulatory change hurt their bottom line, courts would be swamped with such lawsuits constantly. Bottom line, Hoover concludes, regardless of political positions on the wisdom of general student loan forgiveness, the fact that the that the executive could well modify one point six trillion dollars in obligations to the United States government without judicial review presents policy concerns. Well, that's putting it mildly. Indeed, and that ought to alarm everyone. Hoover's is but one law review article, and other lawyers will have different opinions, but the problem we're seeing here is one we've seen, well, for a long time. There are any number of federal emergency statutes that give the president power to do any number of things. Those laws are nearly always passed with huge bipartisan majorities in Congress. They're based on faith that the president will not abuse the power given to him and only use it for actual emergencies when such powers are needed. Well, Maybe there was once a time when presidents could be trusted with such power, or likely it was always naive to do so. But the current president has now demonstrated multiple times that they can no longer be trusted to wield that power. Going forward, Republicans ought to make it a priority to repeal some of the emergency statutes currently in place and clearly defined a limited role for executive power in the ones that remain, not only for controlling the party of opposite uh, political uh, intentions, but for its own. It's even more urgent that they do so if judicial review is not an option. So despite the fact that the executive does not have the authority, the Department of Education does not have the authority, it appears that no one has standing to challenge. Wow. Well, hundreds of people rallied in downtown Los Angeles in June to demonstrate their opposition to the Supreme Court decision that overturned Roe versus Wade. Well, a measure to amend the state constitution. Again, we're talking about the state of California. 
to add protections for abortions uh, appears on track for victory this fall as the issue of reproductive rights appears to be strongly motivating the state's voters. A UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies poll released on Wednesday showed seven in 10 California voters support the proposed constitutional amendment and majorities back other policies aimed at protecting abortion rights. Voters' strong convictions on the issue appear likely to bolster election fortunes of Democrats in the state this November as well. Eight in ten voters called abortion an important issue as they decide how to vote in congressional, state, and local races this November, with 63% describing the issue as very important. Among Democrats, 77% said abortion is very important heading into Election Day, according to the poll, which was co-sponsored by the Los Angeles Times. 43% of Republicans prioritized abortion similarly. They could have a significant impact on races in the state this fall. And uh, the director of the Berkeley poll said in terms of turnout and what it might mean for the November election, I do think the abortion issue is a motivator for Democrats and liberal voters to actually turn out in California. So we'll see how abortion, uh, uh, the role that it plays in voter turnout, not only in California, which is something of a bellwether for the rest of the country, but across the fruited plain. Meanwhile, a federal district court ruled on Thursday that a California mandate that forces churches to pay for elective abortions in health insurance plans is unconstitutional. Alliance Defending Freedom's attorneys representing Foothill Church in Glendora Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills in Chino, and the Shepherd of the Hills Church in Porter Ranch filed a motion in April asking the court to definitively rule in their favor and allow the church to operate according to their religious beliefs, which uphold the sanctity of unborn lives. The government can't force a church or any other religious employer to violate their faith and conscience by participating in funding abortion, the ADF senior counsel Jeremiah Gallus said. For years, California has unconstitutionally targeted faith-based organizations, so we're pleased the court has found this mandate unconstitutional and will allow churches to represent uh, the and operate freely according to their religious beliefs. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll continue to wind our way through the news. And coming up in our second hour, Mo Aiken, author of Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Mo Aiken, Fully Known. Well, young adults in America are using marijuana and hallucinogenic drugs at higher rates than ever before, but are taking fewer opioids, according to the National Institutes of Health study published this week. Is that good news? The proper the um, prop the proportion rather I'm thinking the propagation, the proportion of Americans between 19 and 30 who reportedly use marijuana in the past month rose to 29 percent in 2021, an increase from 21 percent. In 2016, and just 17% in 2011, daily marijuana use nearly doubled over the past decade, with 11% of young adults reporting marijuana as part of their daily routines in 2021, compared to 6% in 2011. Well, the use of hallucinogens, such as um, mushrooms, LSD, and others, is also on the rise. Last year, 8% of young adults reported using hallucinogens, up from 5% in 2016 and 3% in 2011. Also known as um, a drug known as ecstasy is uh, the only hallucinogenic drug that declined in use. Well, opioid use, meanwhile, has been on the decline in recent years. Heroin was used by 0.2 percent of young adults in 2021, roughly half 
of the 0.4% who reportedly used it in 2011. Prescription opioids like Vicodin, OxyContin uh, have also been on the decline among young adults over the last decade. Young adults are in a critical life stage and honing their ability to make informed choices, says uh, drug abuse doctor Nora Volkow. She continued, understanding how substance use can impact the formative choices in young adults is critical to help position a new uh, generation for success. And then, of course, you have fentanyl in the mix. Well, New York Post columnist John Levine, he uh, breaks down finding uh, findings alleging that Hunter Biden met with then Vice President Joe Biden after engaging in business dealings with a corrupt Romanian real estate tycoon. And FBI officials told agents not to investigate the um, younger Biden so-called laptop for months due to concerns about influencing the 2020 presidential election, according to a whistleblower speaking to Senator Ron Johnson. Well, according to Johnson, individuals with knowledge of the Hunter Biden case told his office that the investigation was intentionally slowed on orders from local FBI leadership. While I understand your hesitation to investigate a matter that may be related to an ongoing investigation, it's clear to me, based on numerous credible whistleblower disclosures, that the FBI cannot be trusted with the handling of the Hunter Biden laptop, Johnson claimed in a letter to the Department of Justice. According to the whistleblowers, FBI official told employees, you will not look at the Hunter Biden laptop. Now, might have been perfectly innocent, an effort to avoid influencing the election, or it may have been more nefarious. You can decide which side of the ledger uh, you think that falls on. But according to whistleblowers, that was the effort. Well, in a case of reverse Robin Hood, Senator Richard Burr writes Biden's student loan handout taxes to, uh, taxes the poor and throws gas on the inflation fire from the plumber to the Ph.D. Caught in the crosshairs as violent crime surges in urban areas across the country, many college campuses in these cities are left in the crosshairs, and some students say that they now avoid going off campus when possible. Across cities such as Chicago, Baltimore, Los Angeles, New York, Philadelphia, Seattle, and Washington, D.C., violent crime as of May had increased as much as 40% when compared to the same time in 2021. So who's footing the bill? The White House can't say who's paying for President Biden's pricey student loan handout as the national debt balloons. The Department of Justice recommended against a Trump prosecution on obstruction in the Mueller probe. A newly released 2019 memo reveals and claiming the law was on our side. Texas AG Ken Paxton claims victory after a court sides with the state in an abortion lawsuit against the Biden administration. Saying none, zero, President Biden said that he did not have advance notice on the FBI raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago, despite signing off on elements of the department and the FBI's probe. Saying there's uh, there are better ways, even liberal CNN, MSNBC and NBC pointed out critical flaws in the president's college loan plan. Anti-Semitic history to more Palestinian journalists who worked with The New York Times or in covering the Israeli-Gaza conflict were caught with anti-Semitic and anti-Israel social media histories. Earlier this month, the Times severed ties with freelance producer and fixer Fadi Hanona, who was credited by the paper in multiple stories published this month. According to Honest Reporting, Hanona repeatedly espoused anti-Semitic rhetoric, expressed hostility towards Israel, and spoke favorably about Adolf Hitler. According to the Wall Street Journal, the student loan move should be called Inflation Expansion Act. This is an Inflation Expansion Act. The reports say the president um, will cancel, and we all know now 
the amounts that would cost about three hundred billion dollars this year and three hundred and thirty billion dollars over 10 years. That's far more than the one hundred and two billion dollars. The Inflation Reduction Act purportedly reduces the deficit over 10 years starting in twenty twenty seven. Well, Democrats are struggling to answer basic questions about the student loan bailout. Who pays? Who benefits? What will it cost? There's a reason they refuse to give straight answers. RNC uh, speculates who's paying for this. Karine Jean-Pierre has absolutely no answers for uh, who will pay for Biden's student loan bailout. Speaker Pelosi flip-flopped on the president's ability and authority to forgive student debt. In April, she said people think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. Pelosi today, Biden's move to cancel student debt is a strong step in Democrats fight to expand access to higher education. Now, more than one party benefiting over the other, the concern for me is the rule of law. Are we a nation of laws or not? Florida Representative Charlie Crist alienated Florida voters, saying DeSantis supporters have hate in their hearts. The Florida representative um, uh, had some harsh words for supporters of his Republican opponent during his first press conference as the Democratic gubernatorial nominee Wednesday morning. Christ's first press conference since Tuesday's elections highlighted the nominee's platform and top issues, including expanding abortion rights and access, protecting LGBTQ plus rights and protecting immigrants living in the U.S., all while slamming DeSantis. The socialist primary winner in the New York Uh, In New York, rather, Kristen Gonzalez proudly announces socialism is not going anywhere. Socialism has won. It's uh, it is uh, horrifying to think this can happen in the United States. The Daily Caller says a victorious candidate for the New York State Senate declared her uh, Tuesday night primary win was a victory for socialism in a video that is going viral. Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez endorsed Gonzalez's candidacy, as did Democratic Socialists of America. California will ban the sale of new gas-powered cars by 2035, and Washington has vowed to follow suit. Twitter has denied whistleblower allegations as Elon Musk's legal team uses those allegations to access more information from Twitter. Twitter Inc. chief executive Parag, well, Argrawal, uh, moved to reassure employees on Wednesday about the whistleblower's accusations, calling them funda- foundationally, technically, and historically inaccurate. During a company-wide meeting, Twitter's former security chief, uh, Mudge Zatko, company, uh, had said that in a whistleblower complaint um, made public on Tuesday that the social media company misled federal regulators about its defenses against hackers and spam accounts. Well, Russia targeted a Ukraine train station, killing 15 people. The Associated Press reports that Russian forces Wednesday, Independence Day, launched a rocket attack on a Ukrainian train station on the embattled country's Independence Day, killing 22. President Volodymyr Zelensky said after warning for days that Moscow might attempt something particularly cruel this week. The lethal attack took place in a town about 3,500 people in the central uh, region. The president's office also reported that an 11-year-old child was killed by rocket fire earlier in the day in the settlement. Ukrainian uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs said terrorist Russia keeps killing Ukrainian civilians, at least 15 killed in a Russian missile strike on a train station. Um, As uh, Zelensky uh, stressed, At UNSC, terrorist uh, Russia, as they're referring to the the nation, must be stopped now before it kills more people in Ukraine and beyond. 
Reuters weighs in, saying Russia has repeatedly denied its forces are aiming at civilian targets. In April, at least 57 people died when Russian missiles hit the train station in another town, according to Ukrainian officials. And according to a new poll, voters are swinging less left. PJ Media reports Morning Consult has uh, reported five years worth of data from over 8.6 million participants that shows a trend of America's registered voters moving steadily to the ide- ideological right, which may be the middle from where they initially stood. Interactive poll says uh, blacks and Hispanics uh, voters uh, who identify as liberal declined by double digits since 2017. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back momentarily. Also in our second hour, a conversation with Mo Aiken, author of Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a former Department of Homeland Security secretary makes the case for impeaching Mayorkas your job is to enforce the laws as Congress has written, stated former Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf in his uh, criticism of the current DHS Secretary Mayorkas. Wolf, who served as DHS chief under the previous administration, argued that lawmakers have a very strong case for impeaching Mayorkas over his intentional mismanagement of the agency, specifically regarding maintaining border security and stopping illegal immigration. Wolf pointed to Mayorkas's deliberate ignoring of the law when he said to migrants, if you come across the border illegally, that alone is not a basis for removal. Mayorkas basically just said breaking a federal law means you're not going to be removed, even though the law says you should be removed. Well, Wolf noted that Mayorkas's intentional refusal to secure the border has most benefited the drug cartels who have more money, more territory and more power than they've ever had in the history of cartels. He then pointed to the opioid epidemic now claiming the lives of more than 100,000 Americans via overdose deaths, estimated that 90 percent of that is coming across the southern border. Instead, Mayorkas calls white nationalism a greater threat to America. If Republicans retake Congress, Mayorkas should be the one um, to first head on the proverbial chopping block. An accused U.N. rapist has uh, walked free thanks to diplomatic immunity. So violating the law, even violent law. Charles Dickens, uh, 46-year-old United Nations diplomat from South Sudan, was immediately released by a New York City police department following his being arrested on rape allegations. Why? Investigators concluded he has diplomatic immunity. The victim, who lives in the same building in Upper Manhattan, alleges that he followed her to her apartment after she told him not to and forced himself Upon her, the attack raises the issue of diplomatic immunity, which has long been recognized by the U.S. government, but has also seen repeated challenges as to just how much immunity it grants. The notion that it confers absolute unlimited immunity against uh, legal repercussions for breaking U.S. law should never be the case. And yet the limits of that diplomatic immunity are still unclear in a case as serious as this. He should not be allowed to use diplomatic immunity as a means of getting away with committing a crime. It's smacked of a two-tiered justice system, which, of course, it is precisely. Well, First Lady Dr. Jill Biden has a double, well, a return of COVID-19. Days after the twice-vaccinated and double-boosted Jill Biden was uh, cleared for COVID infection, she first tested positive on the 15th of August. The First Lady once again tested positive in what's being termed a rebound case. 
She's currently staying isolated in the uh, Biden's Delaware home and is said to not be experiencing any symptoms. At 71 years old, she is the uh, demographic group most endangered by the virus that originated in Wuhan, China. Joe Biden himself uh, recently recovered from a rebound COVID infection. The great irony here is that it demonstrates that the COVID vaccine does not work like a traditional vaccine in that it does not prevent infection. At best, it lessens the severity of the infection as uh, appears to have been the case with the Bidens. It further highlights that Biden's one-size-fits-all vaccine mandate was never really intended to stop COVID as much as it was an opportunity to use COVID as an excuse for federal uh, government's power grab. If even the vaccinated get the virus, uh, then why demonize those who refuse? The answer is because it was all about politics. Well, it does lessen the severity, so you can decide for yourselves if you think it was purely politics or an admixture. An unredacted bar memo details the Department of Justice's rationale for not charging President Trump in the earlier investigations. Sort of hard to sort them all out. FBI brass warned agents off the Hunter Biden laptop due to the 2020 election, according to a whistleblower. And Uvalde school police chief Pete Arandondo has been fired over the botched response to the shooting that killed 19 students and two teachers. Idaho cannot enforce its abortion ban in medical emergencies, a federal judge has ruled. And President Biden on Wednesday named Kimberly Cheadle, a 27-year veteran of the Secret Service, to be the agency's next head as it faces scrutiny over missing text messages during the January 6th, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol. In a statement, Mr. Biden hailed Ms. Cheadle's commitment to her job and to the Secret Service's uh, people and mission. Ms. Cheadle served on Mr. Biden's security detail when he was vice president. Last year, the president honored her service with a presidential rank award. She will rejoin the Secret Service from her current role as senior director of uh, PepsiCo North America, where she managed facilities, personnel and business continuity. Well, on this day in history, 1718, hundreds of French colonists arrive in uh, Louisiana with some settling uh, in present day New Orleans. 1916, President Woodrow Wilson signs an act establishing the National Park Service within the Department of the Interior. 1921, the United States signs a peace treaty with Germany. 1944, during the World War II, Paris is liberated by Allied forces after four years of Nazi occupation. 1967, George Lincoln Rockwell, founder of the American Nazi Party, is shot to death in the uh, Uh, the parking lot of a shopping center in Arlington, Virginia. 1981, the U.S. spacecraft Voyager 2 comes within 63,000 miles of Saturn's cloud cover, sending back pictures of and data about the ringed planet. 2004, an Army investigation finds that 27 people linked to an intelligence unit at Abu Ghraib prison near uh, Baghdad either approved of or participated in the abuse of an Iraqi prisoner, or prisoners, plural. 2009, Senator Edward Kennedy, the liberal lion of the U.S. Senate, dies at age 77 in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, after a battle with a brain tumor. 2017, Hurricane Harvey makes landfall near Corpus Christi, Texas. With 130-mile-per-hour sustained winds, the storm would deliver five days of rain, totaling close to 52 inches, the heaviest tropical downpour ever recorded in the continental U.S. It would leave at least 68 people dead and cause an estimated $125 billion in damage in Texas. 2018, Senator John McCain, who spent um, 
years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam before a 35-year political career that took him to the Republican presidential nomination in 2008, dies at age 81 after battling brain cancer for more than a year. Well, the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, had a shout down a, a belligerent reporter during her press briefing today after the reporter expressed outrage at not being called on. Well, the incident occurred in the final minutes of the briefing as Jean-Pierre was attempting to allow another reporter to ask a final question. The frustrated reporter erupted, shouting her uh, her own questions over uh, the White House press secretary's protests. I was supposed to go to Chris in the back and I skipped him. So I'm going back to him. The press secretary said, prompting the shouts. I've been asking you a question for a long time. The second reporter said in the first attempt to begin the question. Well, it's been uh, since yesterday, two weeks since there's been a press conference. So the frustration with the White House press corps is apparently mounting. Well, the White House press secretary then cut her off, saying you're not being respectful. Go ahead, she added, gesturing toward the reporter she had initially called on. Well, the other reporter persisted, however, continuing to yell that she had uh, been attempting to ask a question for more than a week. Respect your colleagues. Respect your colleagues. Jean-Pierre responded. I'm sorry, Chris. You're going to have to start from the beginning because there was some disrespect happening. Well, the female reporter once again shouted over her colleague's question. You're being disrespectful. The White House press secretary responded. The incident is merely the latest occasion that members of the White House press pool have expressed frustration. And it's not unusual for the. Um, press secretary to inspire frustration. She took over from the former White House press secretary, Jen Psaki, earlier this year. Several members of the pool complained in July that the current White House press uh, secretary has a tendency to give non-answers or say outright that the White House has no comment on the news of the day. Well, she is poorly received as she isn't taking time to answer questions or banter with reporters on the issues of the day. One White House reporter said at the time, a press secretary has to share some information, kind of a give and take, but she just doesn't appear willing to do just that. Well, too often she's telling reporters that she has nothing from the podium to say, which is a waste of everyone's time. So the back and forth continuing with the relatively new uh, White House press secretary. We've got news and traffic coming up in just a few moments, but when we return, we'll hear from Mo Aiken. She is the author of Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. And we'll also take a look at a Christian school that has refused to back down, even though the spotlight from NBC News has placed squarely on them. They're located in Florida, but it might be a a sign of things to come. We'll also talk about the high cost of warped compassion. All of that coming up in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm glad you're with us because we're going to talk about a subject that can be a little bit touchy for some of us, either because we don't necessarily understand the concept or we don't quite know how to get to where we want to be. My next guest, who is the author of Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God, she writes that we're made for intimacy, spiritual intimacy with God that brings oneness and bears powerful fruit. We were made to know him and to be known by him fully. So the question is, why do we so often feel burned out, distanced, and disheartened? Well, my next guest is Mo Aiken. She's a New York Times bestselling author. She's back with a new book, Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. She invites readers on a journey into an active communion 
with him. The book's written for people who feel disconnected from God, who feel burned out from religion, or desire to understand what it means to actually have a relationship with God. They hunger for more in the faith. Well, the blueprint of the book is uh, the blueprint our creator has given us, dynamic intimacy with God. What stands in opposition to that model can prevent us from fully experiencing what he has in store for us. Well, my next guest is the New York Times bestselling author of Wreck My Life and Sex, Jesus and the Conversations, The Church for God. Mo Aiken, who is Mo Isom. She collaborates for the Kingdom with Bold Life Initiative, a ministry that exists to challenge, encourage, and equip Christian followers to pursue holy and bold lives. And her family team maintains a thriving nationwide speaking ministry and facilitates a faith-centered blog that has garnered millions of views to date. She and her husband, Jeremiah, they live with their three sons, soon to be four, by the way, in Atlanta, Georgia. Mo, thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I appreciate it. Yeah, we're a week away from number four. So it's uh, (laughs) all hands on deck over here. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Again, congratulations. You know, we use the word intimacy a lot. And in certain contexts, we think we have a pretty good idea of what that means. But can we define the term intimacy in the context of our relationship with God? I mean, he knows everything about us. Is that what the scripture refers to uh, as intimacy, that he knows us? While we may or may not know him very well, what what are we looking at in terms of the goal of our relationship with Christ? Yes, the beauty of true intimacy, even as we think about it in the context of uh, a marriage relationship, right? It is a mutual knowing and being known. It is vulnerability. It's transparency. It's a oneness that comes from, um, man, really being drawn together and pulling back the layers of one another, learning of one another and exploring one another at greater depth. So, There was a season, a time where I was doing a lot of great things for the kingdom, ministering, traveling, Um, man, a wife, a mom. It it felt like doing a lot for God, but it was like my spirit came up for air and felt so far from God, felt so disconnected and hungry for his presence and um, burnt out, to be honest, because we can... Uh, do a lot, but if we're not connected to that true power source, our, our first love, um, then that fruit we bear is really by our own efforts. When he says, no, draw near to me, I will draw near to you, and uh, I want to know you and for you to know me, and the fruit that comes from that, and that's that spirit-conceived fruit that builds the kingdom and um, that we're sustained by. So mm-hmm. the truth of intimacy is it's dynamic. It is um, mutual. It's a choice to continue to engage. And it so beautifully transforms everything when we understand it rightly. You know, this notion of intimacy, uh, I think, repels us from pursuing God. And it also makes us long for that. On the one hand, we long to be known. On the other hand, we fear being known. Is that part of what prevents us from pressing in that um, we'll be exposed that the worst parts of us will somehow um, uh, create an impediment in our relationship with God, which is just contrary to what Scripture encourages us to do. But is that part of what prevents us from pressing into God as he um, moves toward us? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's so many 
encounters um, that we've had in our own lives or experiences. Think of, you know, authority figures that have been over us or maybe uh, relationships with our parents or intimate relationships we've had with other people that have left us hurt or confused or wounded or our perception of um, trusting is violated or, you know, any number of unhealthy relationships with Mm -hmm. man, uh, with one another, these things deeply impress on us our understanding of intimacy. So, man, then here in the scriptures, well, the invitation is to be intimate with God. And we're like, I don't want anything to do with that because that left me hurt or I laid myself there for someone, you know, my heart and they left me, they rejected me. Um, It leads us to believe that God will love us the same as other relationships have been. Um, But the truth is that his, his love is actually perfect and it's abiding and it stays and it's long suffering and it's gracious and it's kind and he doesn't force himself upon us. He um, reveals himself and he gives us a choice uh, to choose to engage with him. And a big part of writing this book and even navigating uh, healing for myself as I, as I began to explore true intimacy with God was processing through, hey, why am I terrified to be vulnerable? Why mm-hmm. does every time, you know, sin is revealed in me, do I just shut down? or want to run from uh, that engagement when really the word says that conviction from the Holy Spirit is, is a work of the spirit. It's a good thing. It's meant to do a beautiful heart surgery on us, you know, to draw what's in the darkness out into light and to set us free because where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. But a lot of the times because we're confused to, to the dynamic layers of intimacy, we just want what feels good or makes us feel good and happy. And if it doesn't, we don't really want much to do with it. We miss out on this sanctifying, transformative love that is uh, layered and dynamic, but is sure and um, and is good on its word and promises us of uh, its staying power. We're talking with Mo Aiken. She's the author of Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. In the introduction you write, let me start by sharing a truth your heart is likely longing to be reminded. You were made to know intimacy with God. You were created to commune with your Creator. Tuned to know that sound, the sound of the Good Shepherd's voice, designed to experience His dignifying touch, and sculpted by Him to house His perfect and powerful spirit. You, you are who He loves, and God has made a way for you to know Him and be known by Him, both now and forevermore. That's such a beautiful reminder of what we are intended to be. But you also write that intimacy comes with great cost. What is the cost that we might expect as we follow God's invitation to press into Him? Yeah, it's it's the reality of, um, again, as we liken it to a marriage covenant, it's the reality of a mutual commitment. Um, what, what marriage doesn't really look like, um, though we see this a lot around us, is basically, I, I choose you and I hope you keep me happy. And if I'm not happy, then... Uh, I changed my mind. But the, the truth of healthy covenant is a mutual exchange 
you give all for me, I give all for you. And we know that Christ gave everything for us. Mm -hmm. He laid down his life to save us, to redeem us. And so this um, mutual engagement is that we're not abusive of grace or picking and choosing when we want to claim God and living our lives, you know, a different way the other days of the week. But it's a mutual laying down of our life. What would you have of me, Lord? Where would you have me go? How, what would you point out in me that, you know, I, I should turn from? How would you use me to build your kingdom? And that uh, picture of, of mutual exchange looks a lot like the work of the cross, which was self-sacrifice. And it's what it looks like a lot in our lives as well. There is cost of um, our wants sometimes, our will to align ourselves with his heart, his way, and his works. And um, while it seems like, man, I don't want to think about the cost. That just seems like a lot. I think the beautiful invitation is to also focus on the great gain. Mm Because when we will begin to um, live in step in oneness with him in that way, yes, there's cost. But the gain that comes to seek the kingdom built, to see captives set free, to see people's lives transformed by his love, to see the work that he wants to do in and through us makes every moment of it worth it. And so this intimacy not only transforms us from the inside out, but it also is what empowers us by his grace to love our neighbors well. And are those not the greatest two commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all and love your neighbor as yourself. And um, the beauty of intimacy with him is that it only heals and helps restore our understanding of right-natured intimacy with one another. And I think we'll see transformation over the body of Christ when we embrace these two things and uh, learn to love and to speak and carry truth well, because we've been loved and we've been ministered to by truth in that hidden place with God. Yes, yes. Once again, the book is Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. I'm having a conversation with Mo Aiken. We'll continue that conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Mo Aiken. She's a New York Times bestselling author. Her most recent book is Fully Known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. It's a, it's a concept that many of us long for, and in Fully Known, how we get there and the benefits of the intimacy that God invites us to with himself is explained in a way that I think will inspire all of us to want to rush toward him as um, as he uh, calls us. Now, I know many of us are very busy doing kingdom work. You mentioned that one of the uh, inspirations for the book was the fact that you were busy doing a lot of things, but there was something lacking. What do you say to those who feel, well, they're burned out, either with service mm-hmm. to the church, with Christianity in general, um, but there's that, that lack of intimacy that fuels joyful ministry moving forward. Um, and, you know, we just, we're ready to just give up. Right. Well, I would first say it's the very place I found myself, like you mm-hmm. mentioned. And so I don't think it's unfamiliar ground for those who um, are navigating the faith. I, I actually think it's an area we don't speak into enough. And so a lot of people become confused, disheartened, kind of shamed around. Well, I, 
I, I do believe in Jesus, but this uh, is exhausting or this, this can't be the fullness of what this blood bought grace is able uh, to do in my life. And we wrestle sort of this shame in that spot. But I think sometimes it takes us stepping back and, and bending a knee and slowing down to realize, oh, my works are preceding my time with mm. him, my intimacy mm-hmm. with him. How many people in the ministry burn out because there are so many things to do, but they don't know how to just be with God, or it is not priority to simply be with him in his presence because our task list runs so deep. We don't have the time. Uh, But the reality is that he has great works in store for our lives, but they are the works that are born out of that intimate, quiet, prioritized space. And those works, those works conceived by the Spirit those are sustainable because we begin building the kingdom of God as he instructs, you know, by his hand versus working so hard to uh, do what we think is best and really burning out in the process. And it's countercultural, right? It's even offensive yeah. to many to say, hey, uh, maybe we Sabbath, <laughs> maybe we settle down, maybe we rest at his feet, maybe you step away for a while. But if we look even at the story of Mary and Martha, whom I love both, and Jesus loved both of those women, we give Martha a hard rap a lot of the time, but she was laboring from good intention, from a pure heart place that wanted to serve the Lord. But what Jesus says in that exchange when Mary asks him to rebuke, or when Martha asks him to rebuke Mary for simply sitting at his feet, he says, Martha, you are concerned about so many things. But, but if you're going to be concerned about anything, let it be this. Mary has found it, and it cannot be taken from her. And I just see in the scriptures this illumination of actual permission from Jesus to concern ourselves with something. But that concern is not, how am I going to fit in Jesus? You know, how am I going to fit in my time with God amongst all my other demands? The concern kind of flips of, how am I going to fit in the needs of life outside of this prioritization of being at his feet? Mm. And he says that what Mary has found there, it can't be taken from her. And I don't know about you, but I, I want the treasures of heaven that can't be taken, no matter what the demands of life are, this world looks like, or you know the circumstances around me. That prioritization, that posture of being with him is... Um, ours and it and it can't be stolen it it can't be taken and um i think it is it's a truth that many of us need to wrestle with and receive that it's okay to slow down it's okay to stop man this book took me two and a half years because he convicted me in the process of writing it and i had to stop for a while Mm. (laughs) be with him so i could actually bring forth the words that he intended not just that my own best efforts could work up. But that's a hard sell for people, (laughs) for our culture, where we're goers and doers and everything can be done so fast and our schedules can be so full. Uh, But it's a holy sell to those who really want to know life and life abundantly with him. Yeah, a life of surrender where he's the priority. Now, some of us do, well, the minimum, if you will, just enough 
uh, to pursue uh, the relationship with God, but don't want to go any further um, or have to? What do we miss when we settle for the least of what's available to us in our relationship with Christ, as opposed to doing what you just described, making the choice Mm -hmm. to believe what the scriptures say, that intimacy with him far outweighs in value and virtually anything else um, than uh, just pursuing what we are familiar with, what we can do on our own. And, you know, with the guarantee, well, I'm going to get to heaven. It's just, I may not know the the king of heaven as well as some others who are Mm -hmm. there. Well, that's what we have to wrestle with. That was the very scripture that challenged me and brought things deeper in my heart. Matthew seven twenty one through 23, where Jesus says, Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, only those who do the will of my Father. And many will say to me, well, you know, did we not prophesy? We cast demons, we perform miracles. But to them, I will say, depart from me. I never knew you away from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I began to wrestle with this scripture because for a while I dismissed it as, oh, it's just non-believers, you know, that it's speaking to, but he's saying, no, there are many who will call me Lord, but they even go on to argue their, their great works, right? But his response is, yeah, but I never knew you. And so Mm -hmm. the prioritization really of the gospel there, the assuredness, the day we stand before him that we wouldn't tremble in fear, but that we would have been made perfect in his love, as the word says, is that the priority is to know him. This word, this uh, in Hebrew means yada. It is um, the same version of the word used when it said like, and Joseph had not yet known Mary or the man took his wife and he knew her. It implies a deep, connected oneness. And so when I began to understand that, a scary piece of scripture actually became a beautiful invitation. But it was sobering in the reality that um, just claiming his name and then abusing his grace, it it doesn't make evident that the gospel has transformed our lives. You know, many doing just the bare minimum, we've sort of bought into, I think, a a cultural cell maybe of uh, the gospel. But I want to be sure, I want to know in my heart, in my spirit, that that he was my, my life source, that my life was one with him, that my days weren't wasted or I wasn't deceived. Uh, but that I took accountability for my own walk and didn't just uh, perform, but I'll stand before him and hear well done because I knew his voice and I followed him and I received his love and I poured out my life in response. And um, it's so much deeper. I, I think a lot of the times, especially when we are walking in maybe a place of that more shallow faith or, um, maybe that cultural buy-in and we say Lord, but uh, it's sort of a, a compartmentalized piece of our days. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes that comes from a heart posture of maybe not even realizing the full and powerful and abundant access that we have to the spirit of the living God. Uh, as if we have to go through someone else, as if we could only learn from, you know, uh, whosoever looks like they're such a strong Christian. No, we have the very bread of life, the word of God 
right at our fingertips. I mean, you could have it as an app on your phone. We have the spirit of the living God eager to commune individually and uniquely and specifically with each one of us. And so if there's someone listening who maybe finds themselves in that place, I would just compel them into depths, into the deeper waters. There is more. Just as the excerpt you read from the book, we were made to know our maker, created to commune with him. And this isn't reserved for an elite few. This is the invitation to all by way of the gospel. He wants to speak to you. He wants to know you. He wants to guide you and uh, answer your cries, your questions. And you have that very same access that I have, uh, that, that your pastor has, that whosoever around you has. Um, it's just the, the willingness to receive that and to um, draw near to that invitation versus running from it or dismissing it as unimportant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the book is beautifully written. It certainly has challenged me, and I'm going to go back and uh, study through many portions of it. The book is fully known, An Invitation to True Intimacy with God. Mo Aiken, thank you for taking those couple of years to write the book and to listen to and be guided by the Spirit. And uh, I'll certainly keep you in prayer as you're just days away from son number number four. Uh, Really appreciate (laughs) your time today. Thank you so much. Be blessed. You too. Again, Mo Aiken, fully known, an invitation to true intimacy with God. A great book. And during this season where we have perhaps a little more time, it's a great opportunity to take stock of where we stand in our relationship with God. And if we're taking full advantage of all that he has made available through to us. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a small Christian school was targeted by NBC News, and they've refused to back down on their Christian traditional morality. I'm talking about Grace Christian School. They fielded hundreds, probably thousands of phone calls on Thursday and Friday over the weekend with just some of the most outrageous, um, outrageous things. People threatening to uh, burn my house down, threatening to kill my family. That's Barry McKean. He's the administrator and pastor of Grace Community Church. This is in Valrico, Florida. Uh, he runs this school. The church does. Well, the threats came in reaction to an article by NBC News that published several paragraphs of an email dated June 6th in which McKean, the pastor, reiterated to school parents the school's commitment to biblical sexuality. We believe that God created mankind in his image, male and female, sexually different, but with equal dignity, read the email and continued. Therefore, one's biological sex must be affirmed and no attempts should be made to physically change, alter or disagree with one's biological gender, including but not limited to elective sex reassignment, transvestite, transgender or non-binary gender fluid acts of conflict or conduct rather Genesis 1 26 through 28 students in school will be referred to by the gender on their birth certificate and be referenced in name in the same fashion 
We believe that any form of homosexuality, lesbianism, bisexuality, transgender identity, lifestyle, self-identification, bestiality, incest, fornication, adultery, and pornography are sinful in the sight of God and the church. He went on to say, he cited Genesis 2.24, Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 30, Romans 1, 26 and 29, 1 Corinthians of Seth Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, the email added students who are found participating in these lifestyles will be asked to leave the school immediately. So this was an internal document to parents of students who would attend the school. Well, it's a bit surprising that NBC News would choose to cite a robust defense of biblical sexuality so extensively. It must believe, and again, we're talking about NBC News, that every word is condemning. Um, NBC felt it needed to uh, uh, only add quotes from three anonymous former students who essentially confirmed the email accurately reflected the school's policy. One left the school for another, which allowed her to be just herself. Another who graduated said her identity as transgender was not something I could be open about. A third, who also graduated, objected to chapel messages preaching against homosexuality. Well, in response, McKean, the pastor and the principal of the school, published a video address on Thursday night, insisting that the school would not back away from its commitment to follow the Bible. Why we are chosen for this experience, I do not know, he said. Almost every Christian school has such a policy, end quote. But he did know one thing. I don't answer to NBC, he explained. I answer to God. And so if a lot of people are mad at me, I'm sorry. I don't like that they're mad at me. But at the end of the day, I answer to God, end quote. Well, the pastor said many things in the article were true. Grace Christian School does have a policy that does not allow students to identify as homosexual or transgender. But that's because um, they're Uh, They're students. They're young people. They shouldn't be sexual at all. God condemns any sexual activity outside of marriage. And that's also in the policy. The policy didn't single out LGBT identities. It also applied to heterosexual immorality. Again, the pastor goes on. We have had these policies in our school since day number one in the early 1970s. He served in the church for 21 years. He clearly explained that God has spoken on these issues explicitly, aggressively. There is no wiggle room. Therefore, it is our policy now. It will be our policy moving forward because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change, he went on to say. But some things were blatantly untrue in the article, the pastor insisted, particularly an anonymous assertion in the NBC article that during chapel hour, he started yelling about how if you're gay, you're going to hell, McKean responded. I did not utter those words. The reason I know that is because that's not my doctrinal position, nor the position of the church. Any sin will condemn you to hell, and that's why we we need a Savior, McKean. Again, the pastor and the principal said, one must come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. One must be born again. So we teach our students, we have to acknowledge our sin. We have to admit that sin to God. Then we have to understand and accept the free gift of salvation, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, was buried, and rose again. To be saved, the sinner must call upon God and admit that sin, any sin, all sin. On the other hand, McKean warned, if you are an unrepentant sinner, you'll be separated from God for all time and eternity. Well, he also responded to NBC emphasizing in the headline that Grace Christian School asks gay and transgender students to leave, noting that we had one student on 
a one occasion whose parents um, and us came to an agreement for them to be withdrawn. And that's about it. Did the school and the atmosphere make them uncomfortable? I would think that a school that's standing for biblical values is going to be discomforting to someone who is not. The students mentioned in the article were loved by the school, he added. We're not hateful people. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, said Jesus. Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Even if NBC and others call them hateful, McKean promised the school would not abandon its biblical convictions. If anybody ever came to me, any entity with the power to do so and said, do this, change this policy or your doors can't open, then our doors would remain closed. He said, we believe the Bible from cover to cover. We're not going to change. This is a private Christian school, he explained. That means that they don't have to conform to the values of public education or the secular religious indoctrination infused in public schools. Parents choose to send their kids to the school, he said, because that's the type of education they want for their children. He admitted that it's not for everybody, but if someone doesn't agree with their values, they have plenty of other schools to choose from, and there are plenty of other families waiting to take their place. But in Christian school, you would find almost the exact same policy in any of them. In many, it's the exact same wording. Well, after the barrage of threats, parents with children enrolled in the school slowed up to the the uh, uh, showed up, I rather, to, uh, to the church on Sunday morning, even if that wasn't the church they regularly attended. Well-wishers from around the country donated to the school, including one who attached a note of his five um, to his five thousand dollar check reading. Stay strong. Keep the faith as millions of students have abandoned public schools since the pandemic started. Some are desperate to disparage Christian schools and other alternative forms of education beyond their control. Yet private Christian schools still offer a positive alternative to a public education system drowning in its own wokeness. Well, Grace Christian School currently has a wait list of more than 100 students. Lengthy wait lists indicate that the demand for a Christian education far outstrips the supply. That's why Family Research Council's senior fellow for biblical worldview and strategic engagement argues that every church should start a Christian school. Well, not every church is in a position to do so. And in fact, the vast majority of them are relatively small churches and aren't in a position to do that. But public schools used to teach shared values and uh, basic education skills, and that was acceptable for many parents. But now that public schools are abandoning the fundamentals and increasingly embracing indoctrination, many Christian parents are rediscovering there's no such thing as value neutral education. Instead, they're increasingly embracing education based on explicitly biblical values. These words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 and 7. Christian schools that stand firm on biblical values are an increasingly attractive option for doing just that. But they will continue to be increasingly under the spotlight. NBC targeted this particular school, Grace Christian School, in Florida, out of the clear blue, published an article that started a furor. Many schools will be tempted to change their charters in order to be more satisfactory to the culture. And the question is, how many will stand firm? We need to take a quick break. Uh, when we return, we'll wrap things up. We're going to talk about what um, the cost of a warped 
sense of compassion and how it undermines a healthy society. That's coming up right here on the Georgine Rice Show when we return in just a few moments. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. I recently read a column written by Laura Hollis in which she made reference to what she called a warp sense of compassion. Now, we're all called to be compassionate. There is a, a, a specific call, particularly on the life of a believer. But in society, it has the potential, if it's a warped sense of compassion, to destroy society. And she writes that thousands of years of civilizations of all sorts have demonstrated that there are certain foundations a society must have in order for humans to flourish and prosper generally. Human life must be valued. Property rights need to be respected. The nuclear family, father, mother, children must be protected. People should, for the most part, keep their promises, including the payment of their debts. Laws and legal systems must respect these structures, enforce and protect them. America is in the process of dismantling the foundations of our society as quickly as our pandering politicians can come up with ways to do it. And if we continue, we will collapse. One of the most common and pernicious justifications for our unraveling is a warped definition of compassion and proof of the damage this is doing is everywhere. The homeless populations exploding in our cities is a perfect example. Michael Schellenberger, a former Democrat activist turned successful author and a recent candidate for governor of California, has written extensively about the mistakes his state has made that have turned a problem into a crisis. Virtually all are textbook examples of misguided compassion. Arguments that poverty is a social construct, eliminating involuntary commitment and mandatory treatment for the seriously mentally ill, creating injection zones where drug users can shoot up safely, in quotes. Governor Gavin Newsom just vetoed that legislation this past week, insisting upon luxury accommodations for homeless instead of bare bones safe housing. The list goes on and on, and California is suffering terribly. The homeless population in Los Angeles County is now in the tens of thousands with third world diseases running rampant in areas where the homeless camp. San Francisco has become infamous for used needles and piles of human excrement in the streets. It shouldn't need to be pointed out that letting people live, sleep and everything else they do shoot up, convulse and die in streets isn't compassionate, nor is it right that Californians should have to endure this in the cities where they live and work. Another of California's misguided efforts based upon compassion is Proposition 47, a law passed in 2020 that reduced theft under $950 from a felony to a misdemeanor. As a practical matter, given the volume of cases state's attorney's offices have to handle, this has turned into a license to steal. Thieves commit smash and grab crimes with impunity, knowing that they will never even be identified, much less prosecuted. Worse, they can steal $950 from store after store after store. Amounts are not aggregated, and flash mobs of thieves are regularly caught on video. Each individual thief is effectively free to steal almost $1,000 in inventory. The results have been catastrophic for property owners who can neither stop the thieves themselves nor count on any law enforcement. Citizens who own businesses that are stolen from are helpless and furious at what's been described as a con job. Voters were told that cost savings uh, from reduced sentences would be moved into treatment for mental illness and drug addiction. Compassion. One would think that other states would 
learn from California's woes. Alas, that appears not to be the case. Here in Oregon, decriminalizing drug use in 2020, encampments of homeless people and drug addicts, many of whom suffer from severe mental illness as well, have moved into some of Portland's most popular neighborhoods, causing property values to decline. City residents are up in arms about filth, crime, and disease. Compassion. In 2019, New York eliminated cash bail for most crimes. Activists who pushed for the changes in uh, in the laws defend it, saying that bail penalizes uh, poverty. But those being penalized now are the innocent victims of criminals who are back out on the streets within hours of their arrest and in a number of high profile cases committing crimes again. Compassion. Now President Biden has gotten in on the action, issuing an executive order for giving $10,000 in indebtedness for people who have taken out student loans. This, too, is being sold to Americans as a compassionate response to those in debt. One question is whether the president has the constitutional authority to uh, modify contracts by executive order. I maintain that he does not. But it is not simply a matter of the president unilaterally changing the terms of a loan agreement between lender and borrower. The president's actions would transfer the repayment obligations to people who never signed those contracts. Because it's not that the $10,000 will not be repaid. Instead, those sums will come to be repaid by taxpayers. As only about a third of Americans attend college, this means that the bulk of taxes repaying these loans will fall on Americans who, on average, make significantly less than the people who took out those loans. Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, a supporter of that of this manner of student loan forgiveness, was confronted two years ago by an angry constituent who stated that he had saved money to pay for his daughter's college education and asked if he would be getting his money back. Of course not, Warren uh, sniffed. So he retorted, you're going to pay for people who didn't save any money and those of us who did the right thing get screwed, end quote. Well, that's an accurate, if earthy, way of summing it up. No one forced anyone to take on student loan debt, but the government will now force others to pay those obligations. Even those who have borrowed money to repay for college and repaid their own debts will be forced to repay others' debts. When politicians use the word compassion to describe their policies, it's a safe bet that those who need genuine assistance won't get it. And everyone else, except politicians, of course, well, they'll carry the load. It is an interesting perspective on a challenge we face in our country today in the name of compassion without the discernment to recognize the significant cost that we pay as a society when compassion is warped. Well, we are uh, just about out of time. I do want to thank uh, Sam Maupin for engineering today's program. James Blend, our producer, is on vacation. We want to thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day as well. Tomorrow, we'll take a look at headline news, the lighter side of the news, and we'll share this week's Christian outlook. So I hope you'll join us. And in the meantime, have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.